Good morning, my name is Madison Campbell and I am the Connections Pastor here at Waterstone. We are so glad that you've joined us and in 2020, we are going through the entire Bible. And today we are launching our second part of the series, Love This Book, Wisdom for Living. If you're new and decided to join us this morning, welcome. We would love to connect with you and have you fill out an info card. You can do that by texting new WCC to 31996 or going to our live stream page and clicking on the info card. For every info card we receive, we're gonna donate $10 to Open Door Ministries to help some of the most vulnerable people in our population right now. Kiddos, we love that you are joining us with your families for worship this morning, and our kids team has created some specific ways for you to help connect in this service. If you click on our kids worship button on our live stream page, you can have access to today's video lesson and to our curriculum. And finally, we love connecting with you here at Waterstone, and there are two ways that you can do that this week. First is our midweek connection happening on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock via our live stream and our Facebook page. And finally, we are launching our small group series this week. And if you are interested in joining any of our Zoom or Skype sessions, you can email Paul Jocelyn at pauljay pauljayatwaterstonechurch.org. Welcome to Waterstone. A scripture reading from Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 4. A good name is better than precious anointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The word of the Lord. I first read the book of Ecclesiastes when I was uh, in high school. Our youth pastor had challenged us to read the Bible through in a year, and I was sitting in our living room in Pennsylvania, and uh, across the living room was my grandpa Renaud, who was uh, in our house uh, dying of black lung. That was my mom's place and gift to our family was to help them die. In fact, two of my great-grandparents uh, spent their dying days in our living room, as well as my mom's sister, Aunt Ruth Ann, who died of cancer at the age of 30. Death, death has been familiar um, and close. Um, several years ago, when I was uh, at a rough place in ministry, kind of drained and uh, diminished, I got some counseling. At Waterstone, we like to call counseling deep discipleship, and we all need it from time to time. And uh, I was working with a counselor about my call to ministry, and he said, uh, I want you, Larry, to do an associative exercise. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and share the first image that comes to your mind when I ask you this question. And so I, I closed my eyes, and uh, he asked me this. He said, what do you love about pastoral work? The first image that came to my mind was a scene from a few days ago I performed a funeral and there were two men out in our hub, and they were embracing, weeping, actually. One of them had just lost what was most dear to him. The other one, an embrace, almost holding him up, both of them weeping. And uh, I told the counselor that it's that, it's that resilience, the resilience in grief, but the resilience of resurrection that holds people together. That's what I love about pastoral work. That's why... My uh, call to pastoral work is best described uh, by Ecclesiastes 7.2. It's death is the destiny of every person, 
the living should take that to heart. You see, I'm convinced until we consider death, until we consider our own death, and that somehow centers us in life, our life will not bloom fully in wisdom. Welcome to Love This Book. We are preaching in 2020 the Bible cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. And we come now to a collection of books in the middle of the Bible called wisdom literature. They were collected during Israel's monarchical period, and uh, they are really designed to help uh, God's people walk through life and bring all of life to God's attention in prayer. And uh, they are especially good for helping us walk through the rough edges of life in a broken world. And no book is better, and we choose this to start, than Ecclesiastes. Here's the big idea of Ecclesiastes. You will live long enough to be unhappy and unstable, and then you die. That's the big idea of Ecclesiastes. Now, um, the first word, after you get through the title line in verse, chapter 1, verse 1, the first word of Ecclesiastes is the word hebel, or meaninglessness, a vapor, a breath, dust in the wind. And again, the idea of Ecclesiastes is that one of the things we have to do to become wise is to realize that our life is a vapor, a breath, transitory. We will not be here forever. Let me put it this way. We are not as strong as we think we are. We are not as smart as we think we are. So today, as we walk through the wisdom literature, we want to start with Ecclesiastes. And the big idea of uh, our, our time together today is this, that, that death, which is the main theme of Ecclesiastes, uh, death is a window that produces quality in life and leads us to the main question of life. Now, death as a window. What's interesting is by the time as you read through Ecclesiastes, and by the way, on our website, there's a reading guide so that each day uh, you can read this week a part of Ecclesiastes. And as we go through these next seven weeks and the, the wisdom literature, you can read right along with us through the wisdom book. So you can download that or find that on our website, the reading guide for Love This Book. As you'll read through Ecclesiastes, by the time you hit chapter 7, there's a, there's a change in the way that the teacher, as he calls himself, the writer of Ecclesiastes, it, now he turns to almost full-on Proverbs. Before, there was a bit of story, there was a bit of prose, but now everything's a proverb. And uh, in fact, it's in chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, it's proverb after proverb after proverb, and, and this little phrase, better than, occurs 14 times in those 14 verses, 17 times in those 14 verses. And it's just a stack of Proverbs. Now, a proverb is like a sticky note on the brain. And you stick them there and they help you to remember that good, contact, good conduct is gain, bad conduct is bane. And they operate that. And then these particular kind of Proverbs in chapter 7, they catch you off guard. For instance, one of them says, well, I think we, we have some of them. The day of death is better than the day of birth. 
What? You're telling me a funeral is better than a birthday party? A house of mourning is better than a house of feasting. Frustration is better than laughter. Like, no, you, you first. Then better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. What the author is trying to do here by stacking the Proverbs and then making them like this is to jolt us to say, look, wake up. You really need to focus on what's important in life here. And the first thing that's important is that we realize that we're living a dying life. Now, most everything in this uh, message that you're about to hear, uh, you could push back on and we could dialogue and debate. But the one thing that I think that I'm going to say that all the statistical, scientific, evidentiary uh, proof is on my side is this. You are going to die. The statistics are pretty good. And uh, that's what the writer, the teacher, wants us to know, that we are living a dying life, that, that death needs to be not avoided at all costs, but it needs to be a window through which you look to improve your life. But, you know, that's really hard to do. Why? Well, for, for a good reason and a bad reason. The good reason is I think it's hard for us to think about death because we're wired to live. If you think about it, when God made us originally, the death was nowhere in sight. And then at the end, when we're with God, at the end of all things, there'll be no death in sight when we are restored. So in our origin and in our destination, there, there's no death in sight. And so it's not natural for us to think about death. It, it takes some discipline. In fact, it was the monks in the ancient monasteries who began to figure this out with the value of Ecclesiastes. If you look at many of the monasteries in Europe, they designed the architecture to be such that in order to get from where you slept to where you ate, you had to walk past the cemetery where they buried the dead monks. And uh, many of the monks, many of those who, who, uh, trans, uh, who copied scripture for us and saved the Bible for us. Uh, you can read about this in How the Irish Saved Civilization by uh, Cahill. He talked about how they used to have a skull that would sit on their desk just to remind them that they have no time to lose. And so it's this idea of being, in this time, in this broken, fallen world, we do need to discipline ourselves to think about our impending death. So, it's kind of good that it's a struggle for us because we know that's not how we were made and it's not how we're going to live forever. But at the same time, in this time, it's important that we do think about our death. And that's what's really hard. I think the, the bad thing about it is that we live in the most grief-resistant, death-denying culture in history. And when we are in our culture, when someone like me rudely comes into your living room and tries to say, hey, you need to realize that you're living a dying life, it, we get annoyed. I think no one wants to do that. It's unpleasant. It's, it's not our favorite thing to do. I was reminded of this in a, the New York Times article. They had a review about a movie called Ordinary Love. And uh, it starred Liam Neeson and Leslie Manville. And this review was written by Mick LaSalle, the New York Times. And he starts off by saying, it, it roped me in pretty good in the first five or ten minutes. There was a lot of interesting dialogue. It looked like this was going to be just a great love story, great movie about marriage. But then, about ten minutes into the movie, she, uh, the wife is taking a shower and discovers a lump on her breast, and everything pivots from there. And suddenly, this is a movie about a person 
who's going to die and how her husband and people around her are going to navigate this. What's interesting is to hear Mick LaSalle write about it. He, he says about in the middle of the review, human beings do our best to make our paradise on earth, but the truth is there can be no paradise because as soon as you have everything you want and have no other worries, you're face to face with the ultimate worry, which is our mortality. That knowledge is a sensitive spot that we all carry with us and the function of this movie, Ordinary Love, is to take a sharp stick and poke you right there. Okay, so far so good. And Mick LaSalle's like right in the middle of Ecclesiastes. But listen to how he ends the movie review and see if you can hear how annoyed he is. He finishes, for my money, a movie that capitalizes on that fear of death while offering nothing else is the cheapest possible creation, a vandal of human happiness that reminds us of that which everyone knows and must forget in order to function. You're going to die, and everyone you care about, them too. But my guess is you're already aware of that reality. You don't require thunderously obvious revelations to bombard you from a movie screen for which you have to pay money. Uh, you can turn from ordinary love and say, no, you will not be dragged through this. You needn't feel guilty. He's very annoyed about what this movie's trying to do in helping us think through uh, that we're living a dying life. I think that's the first response that you often encounter when you talk about the subject of death is it just we don't want to go there and we get annoyed if we have to. I think the other response that we often think when we think about death is anguish. In fact, I think that's all of what this COVID-19 season has been for us. David Brooks, the great New York Times columnist, He's written several editorials, and I've captured some of the language and paid attention. He's been describing kind of the feeling that we're all feeling. He calls it plague eyes. And he said it's this plague eyes that we realize now that there's a current of dread that has rolled through the entire world and caused deep emotional stress. That's why we're all exhausted by 5.30 in the afternoon and want to go to bed. He talks about this dread, this, this revelation has now entered our reality that we are not as strong as we think we are. He said things are much less certain and there is much less control of life than we thought. And that is dread. That, if you think about it, is what death is. I mean, the most uncontrollable event in our life is our death. That's what we're feeling. That's some of the heaviness and weight that we're dragging around is the thoughts of living a dying life. But that is right where the teacher in Ecclesiastes wants us to go. He says that when you're thinking about death, your death, your impending death, there's wisdom that comes from that, and that's exactly part of what we should be thinking about during this time. No one captured this kind of wisdom better than C.S. Lewis. Uh, during the Second World War, Lewis preached a sermon called Learning in a Wartime. And he was just talking about this is a dreadful time, one of the worst moments in the history of the world. But there are things to be learned from this time. Listen to how Lewis go, talks about this. And if you, when he says war, if you put the word plague it's relevant right to where we are. C.S. Lewis says, the war, the plague, creates 
no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. War makes death real to us, and that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. They thought it good for us to be always aware of our mortality. We see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we have all along been living and must come to terms with. If we had foolish, unchristian hopes about human culture, they are now shattered. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, here's where the beginning of wisdom starts, with the knowledge that we will not live here forever, that we are living a dying life. And the sooner we come to terms with that, the wiser people we will become. Now, how does that work though? How does thinking about your impending death produce quality in your life? Well, it works like this. Part of what wisdom is, is the imagination to go to the future destination, to go to the place in the future where you will be living with Jesus, who is the only one that can satisfy the hunger of your heart and bring joy to your soul, the things that, I mean, your heart was made, it's wired to have communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And until you have that communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ, everything else will be a substitute that will lack in its ability to soothe your soul. You can keep trying everything else. That's really what Ecclesiastes is all about, trying everything else for, to fill that gaping hole in your soul that only Jesus can fill. So part of what wisdom is, is going to that future when you will be with Jesus and then looking back through the window and seeing your life now. In other words, if you know that only Jesus can satisfy your soul and, and you go there and look back on now your relationships, that will drastically change what you expect out of relationships. And the wise person knows that no other human being can meet the gaping needs of my heart. Uh, I, I was reminded of this uh, several years ago reading a book by Craig Barnes, and he talked about this friend of his. He said, a man told me he had been dating a woman for several years, and she was starting to wonder if they would ever marry. He told me he didn't know if he could marry her because, as he said, I don't think she makes me happy. I asked him why not, which was a mistake. He went on and on explaining all the reasons why she didn't make him happy. Finally, I interrupted and said, what kind of wife would make you happy? The more he described what he was looking for in a wife, the more convinced I became that what he was really looking for was not a wife. What he really needed and was looking for was a goldfish the pretty kind, with a long tail that floats around. A goldfish just sits there and looks pretty and doesn't ask you to communicate. It doesn't ask you how your day was or expects you to listen to how its day was. The last thing he needed was a wife because his whole understanding of why the world existed was to meet his needs. A wife or a husband, and I would add, a, a child, a, a, a parent, will not meet your needs, neither will friends. Neither will the church or even a goldfish. 
which is not to say you don't have needs and that they're not important and ought to be met. But for that for you, we'll have to, we will have to follow the example of the disciples. Pray to God, who alone can be your Savior and meet your human needs. Then you can be useful to other people. So this idea of wisdom, knowing that we will die and go to live with Jesus, wisdom is the ability then to turn back and look on your life and uh, ask yourself just really good questions. How am I treating my relationships? Knowing that only Jesus can meet the gaping needs of my soul. What are my expectations of my friends and my spouse, my children, my parents? You see, it better boundaries everything. I think it works in relationships, but I think it also works in priorities. Again, you go to the future, you turn around, look back, and it really helps you. Wisdom is viewing all things in your life from the vantage point of eternity, looking back on things and helping you establish priorities. Uh, there's a book out uh, called A Resilient Life, and it's written by Gordon McDonald. And this book was born out of an experience that Gordon MacDonald had. This, uh, I think he published it in 2006, maybe. Um, so he was in his 60s at the time. But he was speaking to a group of worship leaders who were in their 20s and 30s. He started in on a couple of things he wanted to share, and he paused, and he asked if anyone had any questions. The room kind of exploded with question after question after question. In fact, one person finally spoke up and asked this question. He said, Gordon MacDonald, since you're now older and Gordon McDonald wasn't quite sure how to take that remark, but he took it. And uh, since you're now older, would you kind of look back over your life and give us the questions you would have asked when you were in your 20s, when you were in your 30s, when you were in your 40s? And that was the birth of the book, A Resilient Life. And what I'd actually like to do is go with Gordon McDonald to the end of our lives and then look back on them for wisdom with the right kinds of questions to ask. This is how knowing that you live a dying life brings quality to your life. In the book, A Resilient Life, and by the way, all these questions are going to be in your small groups uh, for the week. And that's, it's, today, you can actually sign up on our website and still get into a small group through Zoom online and uh, just meet people, make new friends, and work on questions like this. So go to our website after the sermon and uh, sign up for one of our small groups. So here's a question for uh, teens and 20-somethings. And uh, the first one is, around what person or conviction will I organize my life? That's the lordship question, right? That's who is going to be the one with the final say over your life. Uh, I think the next question, 30-somethings, one of the questions they ask as their life begins to expand with responsibility, but the time they have doesn't expand with it. They begin to ask, who are the people with whom I want to walk through life? They also begin to ask, I think an interesting question, how far can I go? Can I actually go in fulfilling my sense of purpose? Options begin to close off in your 30s. And how do you uh, prioritize the demands being made on your life. And by the way, I would add this. This is a great thought from Gordon MacDonald. For many men, the 30s are the beginning of the onset of male loneliness. New male friendships are not easily made, nor do they often measure up to the kind of friendships one used to enjoy. 
Old friends have drifted away and often new acquaintances simply do not have the time to build the satisfying relationships that were part of our younger years. In fact, my experience has been as I've gotten older through the years with male friendships is you have to work harder, you have to be more intentional, you have to take more risks to make friends. And I would encourage you to check out our men's ministry, again, through our website. Josh Bragg is even during this uh, COVID time offering Zoom gatherings and uh, podcasts of different men. And we're really trying to encourage male friendship during this time. When you hit your 40s, questions change and become more frequent. Why do some people seem to be doing better than I'm doing? Why am I often disappointed in myself and others? Why are limitations beginning to outnumber options? And of course, it's often in the 40s when you begin to wrestle with these things that we've traditionally called midlife crisis and uh, trying to answer some of these questions. I think you hit your 50s, the questions get interesting. Why is time moving so fast? There, this is where I'm living right now. Why is my body becoming so unreliable? How do I deal with my successes and failures and my marriage or my singleness? And, you know, with 50-somethings, often your kids start to leave home and you begin to understand your marriage needs to change and grow in entirely new ways. And uh, there's one more question, I think, that we often run into in our 50s. Who are these young people that are trying to replace me all of a sudden? When you get to 60s, the questions go to this. When do I stop doing the things that that have always defined me? Do I have time and money? to do things I really want to enjoy. Who will be around me when I die? I think one of the things that hits you in your 60s is that you're well past the midlife of uh, your life and you begin to think about your death more and more. And then you hit your 70s and 80s. Does anyone really know or care who I once was? Is my story important to anyone? How much of my life can I still control? Am I ready to face death, to face death? God, what is heaven like? You see, these are the questions of of a resilient person, a person who's willing to go to the very end and look back on their life and on their life's priorities. But I think all of these questions are designed to lead to the last question, the big question. Now, I think often we start out and think that the big question of life is what happens when we die. And certainly that's a big question. In fact, it's always interesting to read people's um, ideas about what happens when we die. They vary from person to person in our culture. They vary even within families. But I think there's two general ideas. The one idea, and this is one promoted by the great uh, atheist, the late atheist, Christopher Hitchens, by the way, whose books I've read, whose articles I've read, one of the great writers of his time. But Christopher Hitchens says, what happens when we die? We are reconciled to living only once, except through our children, for whom we are perfectly happy to notice that we must make way and room. Chris Virgin says, nothing happens when we die. Worm food, dead, gone, it's over, nothing. What's interesting is that uh, Peter Hitt, uh, Christopher Hitchens has a brother, Peter, who is a columnist in London and also a Christian. And one time, Peter Hitchens was at the uh, Festival of Dangerous Ideas in Sydney, Australia in 2018. And he was sitting on a panel with two other people and they were asked this question, what dangerous idea has the greatest potential to change the world for the better? One of the columnists or the uh, panelists was Dan Savage, who was an American author, also an atheist, and he launched into his dangerous idea that abortion should be mandatory for 30 years to reduce the world's population. 
The feminist, also on the panel, Jermaine Greer, expressed nothing new, just said freedom. And when the moderator asked Peter Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens' brother, his answer clearly rattled the others. He said, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. This is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. The moderator interrupted him and said, wait, wait, what do you mean by that, that the resurrection is a dangerous idea? Hitchens continued, because, he, the, the, the question was, why is it a dangerous idea? And Hitchens says, because the resurrection alters the whole of human behavior and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a design place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all if we reject it it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. That's why so many people turn against the resurrection of Jesus. That's the decision that we have. We read Ecclesiastes, perhaps the most true book in the Bible as far as easiest to prove, whose big idea is you're living a dying life. Look around us. We are living a dying life. So the question is this, what are you going to do about your death, your dying life? You have to decide. You have to make up your mind about what happens when you die. You know, I've been thinking uh, throughout the last weeks how Jesus would respond, you know, WWJS, what would Jesus say about the COVID-19 pandemic? I think there's a the text in Luke that gives us at least partially, a pretty clear idea of something Jesus would say to us directly about this pandemic that we're living in. If you go to Luke 13, Jesus said these words. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, let me just say that, that what happened was that Pilate, the government leader, was persecuting people and killing them, killing innocent people. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. You see, the worldview in Jesus' day, especially even in the Jewish community that he lived in, would have been, well, they must have deserved that. And then of those that didn't die, well, they didn't deserve that. Now, certainly we would question that worldview, but that was the thinking. And then Jesus goes on, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, just a you know, building collapsing on them, just randomly. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Whoa. Those words get your attention. You see, what Jesus is actually saying is that the great surprise of the COVID-19 pandemic is not how many people have died. The great surprise is that we all haven't died. It's a stunning statement. The statement that Jesus makes here is that everyone deserves to die. Why? Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have twisted the truth to tape up our reputation. 
all of us have said hurtful, unkind, self-centered things, even to people that we love. All of us have spent much more money on ourselves than we should. All of us have had lustful thoughts and, and envied other situations. All of us have smoozed with gossip. All of us have lost our temper. And every once in a while it crosses our minds. We come to our senses and say, we shouldn't be doing this because it's hurtful to other people. But how many times does it actually cross our mind and say, we should not be doing these things because it offends God, His majesty is outraged. We're, we're taking life into our own hands and living our own way, ignoring completely the one who made us and the one who saved us. The real surprise every day of this world that, that, is that anyone's alive because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you see, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. It's why He came to give us even today, in the middle of this pandemic, these words, unless you repent, you will all perish. The point there is you can repent. You can completely turn your life around, give your heart, your soul to Jesus Christ. You can be saved. It's mercy. Do you know Ecclesiastes is my favorite book of the Bible? You may have figured that out. Do you know what my life verse is from Ecclesiastes? is in chapter 9 and verse 4. It says this. Better to be a sick dog than a dead lion. Better to be a sick dog than a dead lion. Why? Because while you're alive, there's always hope. Always hope. That's why we never give up on anybody. We never give up on anybody. Better to be a sick dog than a dead lion. It's why we preach the gospel. It's why we send people around the world to all other cultures, all around the world, because people matter to God. Jesus Christ came to show us the heart of the Father, and that heart is love. You see, here's the main question of life. Right now, in this moment, what will you do with Jesus? Is there any reason why you should not love him with every fiber of your being? I mean, we were unworthy, and he counted us worthy. We were under judgment, and he shows us mercy. We were lost in sin and death, and he clothes us in righteousness and life. He conforms us now, moves into our life, gives us his spirit, and begins to rebuild us from the inside out so that we can live like Jesus and love like Jesus. And at the end of it all, it's resurrection. The hokey pokey on our grave, that's what it's all about. Jesus said, if you hear my voice and believe, you have passed from death to life. Do you hear the voice of Jesus here and now in this moment? Would you pray with me? Father, the message of Ecclesiastes, it's hard. It doesn't sit well. I mean, we don't like to think about our death. We don't like to think that Time here on earth will come to an end and everything will drastically change in our existence. It's hard. But yet, Lord, it is a mercy. It's a mercy even now to be reminded that we are not as strong as we think we are, not as smart as we think we are. We need you. And so we say to you, Jesus, we need you. We need the life you live to be ours so that we can be counted righteous. We need the death you died to be ours so that we can be forgiven. Lord Jesus, 
I pray for anyone listening, anyone now uh, just watching this live stream, that uh, if they haven't yet done it, that even now they could say to you, Jesus, just say, I'm yours. I need you. I know I'm living a dying life. I need you. I'm yours. Thank you for the promise, Jesus, that you will save. When we hear your voice and believe in you, you save. And we give ourselves to you now. Amen. In a moment, we're going to end this time with a part of a, a liturgy called the Heidelberg Catechism. But before we do, I did want to say that on our website, there's a button you can press called COVID-19 Care. And on that are a whole number of resources, job resources, prayer request place, um, ways to bless your neighbors, good ideas for how to be neighborly during this time. But one of the things I really point out is there's a place where you can say, hit the contact button, and we have a counseling network uh, at Waterstone where counselors now are ready and willing to meet with people via Zoom or even in person because they are essential workers, but uh, you know, in very uh, social distancing ways. Uh, and, and mainly offering discounted rates and church-subsidized rates. So if there's any of us out there who need some deep discipleship right now, who need to know they're not alone, who need uh, just listening ears, but even more good, solid input, biblical, uh, healthy, therapeutic input, we want to make this available to you. So just through our website, just contact us if we can connect you to our uh, counseling network. We'd be honored to do that. Let's begin, and before we sing, good, good Father, let's profess our faith as a church in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So I'll be the reader, and you say out loud where you are, uh, you be all. What is my only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from all the power of sin, death, and the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures us of eternal life and makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. I will live for Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's proclaim this now as we sing, Good, Good Father. Thank you for joining us in worship this morning. This week, we are starting Alpha. And if you're like me, this time might have you asking some bigger questions about life or having discussions about some of those deeper things, like who is Jesus and why am I here? If this is you or a friend of yours, then Alpha's for you. We're starting Monday nights at 6.30 via Zoom, and we would love for you to join us. You can find out more information on waterstonechurch.org backslash alpha. If you're new, we would love for you to fill out an info card and to connect with you. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much that you are a God that lets us ask the big questions in life and that you are present with us every step of the way. Will you be with us in this week as we work, as we rest, and as we play? In your holy name I pray, amen. Have a great Sunday, Waterstone.